As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, episode 2.91, The Younger Cromwell. One of the themes of the last few episodes has been the protectorate's search for legitimacy. A new parliament failed to deliver, and the results of the military campaigns of 1655 were, at best, mixed. The Lord Protector finally had his alliance with the European power, France, but the lackluster Western design had punctured the aura of invincibility that surrounded the military power of Republican England. The regime was strong enough to see off a poorly organized royalist uprising, but there would be greater challenges ahead. What I want to do in this episode is take a closer look at one of those challenges, Ireland. Now, being a challenge for a government at Westminster to overcome was hardly a new role for Ireland. But what might be unexpected is where that Irish challenge came from. The protectorate wasn't so much threatened by a renewed rebellion among Irish Catholics, but by its own occupying government. This was especially surprising because the top man in Dublin was Oliver Cromwell's brother-in-law, Charles Fleetwood. Surely the Lord Protector's control over Ireland was strengthened by this bond of kinship. To understand why it wasn't, we'll have to briefly revisit the situation on the ground when we last crossed the Irish Sea. Back in episode 2.77, Adventurers and Soldiers, we spent a lot of time sorting through the 1652 Act of Settlement that laid out Ireland's post-war future. That piece of legislation, passed in the Rump Parliament, called for the massive redistribution of land from Catholic rebels to English investors and the as-yet unpaid soldiers who had won the war in Ireland. In practice, however, that process would take years and rely on the discretion of the officials overseeing the confiscations, surveys, and grants involved. The Act of Settlement also laid out general ground rules for Irish religion, the implementation of which would similarly depend on the discretion of Irish officials. In other words, the people running Ireland would have far greater influence over the nation's future than the men at Westminster who had drawn up the Act of Settlement. Everything hinged on the man tasked with navigating the competing factions at Dublin, Charles Fleetwood. We met Fleetwood on our last trip to Ireland. Cromwell's brother-in-law was, in a sense, the inverse of Cromwell's old brother-in-law, Henry Ireton. Where Ireton had excelled at politics more than battlefield heroics, Fleetwood was a better soldier than a politician. He was overwhelmed by the difficulties of governing Ireland. The source of Fleetwood's failures was his inability to control the radical Baptist faction of the army in Ireland. On the two key issues of land and religion, he repeatedly deferred to army leaders who demanded a harsh implementation of the Act of Settlement. This alienated just about everyone else in Ireland. Old English elites, who hoped to act as mediators between the Republican regime and the Catholic population, 
the Presbyterian Scots of Ulster, who felt themselves being lumped together with Catholic rebels, and even the traditional Protestant rulers of Ireland, the New English. Partly, Fleetwood was intimidated by army radicals, but he was also swayed by his sense that the Irish Catholics were irredeemable. Any attempt to accommodate them would end in failure, and so empowering the firm hand of the army was the only reasonable option. The result was an ineffectual government that enjoyed little cooperation or buy-in from any of Ireland's many factions. But Fleetwood's reliance on Baptist army officers presented an even more immediate problem. Many of those officers were linked to Thomas Harrison and the Fifth Monarchist Movement. They were none too pleased with the circumstances surrounding the foundation of the Protectorate, the dissolution of the nominated assembly, and the marginalization of Harrison and his religious allies. Edmund Ludlow, the old rump Republican, was still influential in Dublin as well. He had come to Ireland while the war was still ongoing, as the head of a commission to run civilian affairs. For Ludlow, Cromwell was something akin to a usurper, seizing an authority that could only be legitimately granted by the people. If Fleetwood had been insecure about his ability to govern Ireland before the Protectorate, after the new regime took over, he worried that his one reliable instrument, the army, might turn on his brother-in-law. Ludlow and the army didn't reject the authority of the Protectorate regime, but there was a noticeable tension between Dublin and Westminster that Fleetwood struggled to manage. The main source of contention were the land seizures associated with the Act of Settlement. The government in Dublin pressed for the comprehensive confiscations laid out in statute, but Cromwell reminded Fleetwood that during the war he had negotiated terms of surrender for many rebels, which guaranteed their property. For the Lord Protector, these agreements were sacred and could not be overridden by the Act of Settlement. In the summer of 1654, as the Protectorate consolidated its power at Westminster, Cromwell and Fleetwood traded letters across the Irish Sea, mostly concerning the fate of Ireland's Catholic landowners. Cromwell demanded that his brother-in-law recognize the promises he had made during the war, reminding him how much the faith of the army and our own honor and justice is concerned in the just performance of articles. In addition to preserving his own honor, Cromwell had more practical motivations. The Lord Protector's mailbox was flooded with letters from Irish landowners, protesting their loyalty and begging to be spared from the mass confiscation of properties. While Cromwell had little sympathy for Catholic rebels, he saw the advantage of cultivating loyalty within the Irish Catholic elite. Even the new model army couldn't rule by force of arms alone. Cromwell suggested that Fleetwood focus on rebel leaders first and delay all other seizures. Or he could allow certain men to place their property in trusts, suspending any legal action until the situation could be clarified. Fleetwood, however, repeatedly refused Cromwell's requests. The Lord Protector wasn't aware of the reality on the ground. Granting exemptions or showing leniency would only inspire others to beg for mercy too. The process of confiscating a whole nation's worth of land was hard enough as it was without that kind of obstruction. Betraying a bit of frustration at Cromwell's meddling, Fleetwood suggested the creation of a committee of final appeal in Dublin. Allowing men to go over his head and appeal directly to the Lord Protector was intolerable. Undoubtedly, Cromwell meant well, but Fleetwood worried that the Lord Protector was being manipulated by wily Catholic elites. The best of them are to be pitied, he wrote, but not to be trusted. To Cromwell's spymaster, John Thurlow, Fleetwood delivered a more ominous warning. Passing on rumors of a Catholic assassination plot, he advised Thurlow to suffer no Irishman under what pretense soever to come near my lord's person. It was a play right out of Thomas Wentworth's book. One of the best ways to wield power in Ireland was to control the flow of people and information off the island. By the end of 1654, the Lord Protector decided that his Ireland problem had to be addressed. That December, while he was dealing with the collapse of the Protectorate Parliament, Cromwell delegated Irish policy to another family member, 
his son Henry. Henry Cromwell was born in 1628, just before his father's humiliating political exile from Huntingdon. He wasn't the eldest. Two older brothers had already died, Robert while at university, and Oliver Jr. while fighting in the Civil War. And Henry's remaining older brother, Richard, had little aptitude or interest in politics. Henry was just 14 when the Civil War broke out, and so only joined the army in its final days. He served with Thomas Harrison's regiment, then later joined his father on the Irish campaign of 1649. When his uncle, Henry Ireton, took over command, Henry stayed on. In the course of his Irish service, young Cromwell formed a relationship with Roger Boyle, the younger son of the great New English family of Munster we've met a few times. Once the Irish War was over, Henry displayed an aptitude for politics and returned to England to represent Ireland in the nominated assembly. When Oliver Cromwell started having his difficulties with the government in Dublin, his son was a natural choice to be his agent there. On a visit to Ireland in the middle of 1654, Henry Cromwell assessed the political landscape for his father. Upon returning to London, he informed the Lord Protector that Fleetwood was no longer the true power in Dublin. Edmund Ludlow and the radical elements in the army were calling the shots. Which brings us back to December 1654. On Christmas Day, the Lord Protector made Henry Cromwell the Major General of Ireland, commander of the army there. Fleetwood still retained the higher title of Lord Deputy of Ireland, but the subtext was clear. He was to return to England and surrender all real authority to his nephew. This Fleetwood was hesitant to do, and as Cromwell was reluctant to humiliate his brother-in-law by openly stripping him of his office, a lengthy negotiation ensued. Henry Cromwell didn't arrive in Dublin until July 1655, around the same time the Western design ships were heading home. Even so, Henry Cromwell's position in Dublin wasn't unassailable. Oliver Cromwell was sensitive to accusations of nepotism, especially since his son was still just 26 years old, a remarkably young age to be entrusted with the governance of a whole nation. So Charles Fleetwood retained the title of Lord Deputy, despite returning to England. This prevented Henry from exercising full independence in forming his council in Dublin. Ludlow was forced out when he was discovered with a cache of anti-protectorate propaganda, but radical army officers remained entrenched in many important offices. And almost immediately upon his arrival, it was clear that Henry and the army were enemies. Part of this was due to the young man's personality. The contemporary consensus on Henry was abrasive and energetic, perhaps not surprising given his age. But there were definite policy differences between the new major general and his subordinates in the army. Henry had a mandate from his father to balance the books in Ireland, which could only be achieved through a drastic reduction of the standing army. Over the next few years, the Irish army would be pared down from 35,000 at its peak to 9,000. Henry's rivals in the officer corps had no doubt that the cost-cutting measure would be accompanied by convenient political purges. Henry was also intent on curtailing the influence of the Baptists. Under his guidance, the army withdrew financial support for Baptist preachers and transferred prominent Baptist officers to remote outposts where they could have little influence. The goal wasn't suppression, but marginalization. As Henry Cromwell put it, his aim was not to crush them, quite, lest others take occasion to become insolent and violent. These measures successfully limited the power of the Baptists, but didn't give Henry control over the council in Dublin. In order to complete that task, and break the political deadlock, he turned to allies outside of government. One of these allies was his old friend Roger Boyle. New English families like the Boyles resented the influence of the Baptists, who were horning in on what should have been the great triumph of Ireland's traditional Protestant elite. For their part, the Baptists abhorred the Protestant Church of Ireland that the Boyles belonged to. 
Although the Church of Ireland had been at the cutting edge of Calvinism in the 1630s, its formal structure now looked downright popish to separatist radicals. But perhaps Cromwell's most influential ally, at least measured by long-term impact on Ireland, was an intellectual and tireless self-promoter named William Petty. Petty was the son of a clothier from Romsey in Hampshire. In his youth, he worked as a mariner, mostly on ships trading in the English Channel. But in 1637, at the age of 14, his ship ran aground in Normandy, and he was more or less abandoned. Being a resourceful and inquisitive young man, Petty found his way to the Jesuit college at Caen. There, he was lucky enough to receive some lessons from René Descartes, the leading intellectual of the age. After a brief visit home, Petty spent most of the 1640s back on the continent, at various schools. First, he studied medicine in the Netherlands. Then, Petty moved on to Paris, where he entered an intellectual circle we've encountered before. Descartes' colleague, Marine Marsen, and his friends. Through these French natural philosophers, Petty made contact with a similar group of like-minded men in England, centered around Samuel Hartlib. You recall that these guys were seizing on the opportunities the new regime in England provided. The old political system had been discarded for something new, and men like Hartlib and Petty hoped that the same might be true in fields like education, economics, and society more generally. Here was a novel chance to put the new scientific knowledge floating around Europe into practice. And if that was true of Commonwealth England, it was doubly true of Ireland, where the whole nation was being rebuilt from the ground up. At 30 years of age, William Petty signed on to take part in the experiment. Never one to be modest about his abilities, Petty had plans to thoroughly reform Ireland's trade and taxation policies, as well as its judicial and education systems. But most of his work went towards the great obstacle holding up the redistribution of land, the need for a comprehensive survey of Ireland. Before Petty's arrival in 1653, surveying work was being handled by Benjamin Worsley, another member of Hartlib Circle. But Petty was unimpressed with Worsley's work, and as the incumbent surveyor had political connections to the Army Baptists, Henry Cromwell championed Petty's takeover of the project. Land was perhaps the thorniest issue facing the Irish government. As you'll recall from our previous episode in Ireland, mass confiscations were meant to pay for the costs of the Long Irish War and make any future rebellions impossible. The Act of Settlement, passed at Westminster in 1652, confirmed this ambitious project of land redistribution. But there were significant obstacles on the ground in Ireland, like who should get the land, the soldiers who were owed back pay, or the investors who contributed money to the war effort in exchange for lands. The investors, or adventurers, claimed 1.6 million acres. The soldiers demanded slightly more, 1.7 million acres. But where exactly would these lands lie, and how would their value be determined? And even before that, there was the question of which lands would be confiscated. Big-picture strategists in London and Dublin imagined a massive reorganization of Ireland's population. Not only would Catholic landowners lose some of their property, but they would be forced en masse into the western province of Connaught. The goal was to pacify the majority of Ireland under Protestant ownership, while herding the Catholic elites into a manageable enclave in the west. But this only complicated the question of land values. Not only would the government have to figure out the value of the land assigned to soldiers and investors, but it also had to find land in Connaught that matched the property the Catholic elites would be surrendering elsewhere. Before Petty took over the project, Worsley had been struggling to meet these challenges, and he wasn't helped by the constant pressure for speed. The soldiers and investors wanted their land, and the uncertain limbo did nothing for the stability of the Irish state. Historian Sean Connolly describes the resulting confusion as a huge and not wholly coherent scheme. Government officials processed evictions and relocations to Connaught in a piecemeal fashion, 
sometimes before the lands in question had been surveyed and assigned a value. As we've seen already, some landowners appealed to Oliver Cromwell to protect their property, causing further delays and uncertainties. One of the greatest uncertainties lay in what exactly transportation to Connaught meant. In the first half of 1654, some 1,600 landowners had been processed and told to move west. But the actual number of migrants was much higher than that. Joining the landowners were about 44,000 family members, servants, and tenants. The Act of Settlement only referred to the landed elites. It had been silent on the fate of the people. Was this to be a forced migration of Ireland's whole population? The English authorities were divided on the issue. The traditional New English Protestants, roughly speaking, the civilian authorities who Henry Cromwell aligned with, argued for limited migrations. They wanted to displace the Catholic elites, but retain the Irish Catholic tenants who worked the land. The New English argument was equal parts pragmatism, self-interest, and idealism. From long experience in Ireland, the New English saw the dangers of mass forced migrations. Nothing was more likely to reignite the disastrous rebellions of the past decade. There was also a degree of self-interest, however. Cheap Catholic labor was a great way to turn these confiscated lands into instant moneymakers. Finally, the members of the Protestant Church of Ireland were energized by the hope of conversions. Surely, once the people of Ireland were separated from their Catholic landlords, the iron grip the Roman Church had on them would weaken. The army Baptists, however, offered a drastically different vision of Ireland's future. Using rhetoric that in some ways prefigured 20th century propaganda, they argued that the expulsion of all Irish Catholics, both rich and poor, would provide ample living space for English settlers. These lands shouldn't be given to wealthy Dublin power brokers looking to expand their estates. They should be used to create a new class of English soldier turned yeoman farmer. Soon after Henry Cromwell's arrival in the summer of 1654, he injected himself into the debate on the side of the New English. And his main instrument was a new supervisor of the Great Survey, William Petty. Petty's survey served to delay the processing of confiscations and forced migrations, and in the end, Henry Cromwell succeeded in reshaping the land reforms into something resembling the New English model rather than the proto-Liebenstrom demands of the army. But Petty had far greater ambitions than merely resolving a political deadlock or assessing the value of land. He and his team of natural philosophers recruited from England experimented with new equipment and instruments and produced incredibly thorough maps. They also collected demographic and economic data, treating their work as something akin to a modern census. Petty's true passion was economics, though that field of study didn't really exist yet. The data he collected in Ireland provided the raw material necessary to change that. In a sense, Petty was following in the spirit of Francis Bacon earlier in the century. His goal was to collect empirical evidence that could be effectively applied to solve real-world problems. Thomas Hobbes, who Petty had met in Paris and considered a mentor, was another influence. Where Hobbes had tried to construct a science of politics that pointed man to the most effective system of governance, Petty hoped to create an even broader science of economic systems. Traditionally, a nation's economic power had been measured in terms of land and natural resources. But Petty was unsatisfied with that approach. How could you explain the tremendous wealth of the Dutch, who had little land and few natural resources? Petty suspected that the secret lay in a nation's people. Through detailed investigations of population levels, via birth and death records, Petty assembled demographic data. He then built up economic data through customs receipts to measure production and output. Petty suspected that a nation's true economic strength could be determined using population and production to calculate productivity. How efficient was the economic activity of the people? The information Petty collected in his survey led to some counterintuitive conclusions. By his calculations, Ireland was underpopulated. 
This flew in the face of conventional economic thinking. To most Englishmen, population growth meant inflation and a scramble for finite land. But 150 years before Thomas Malthus, Petty ignored the linear connection between population and land. Despite its poverty, Ireland needed more people, not less. It lacked a domestic consumer market to encourage production. Petty suggested that the government subsidize the migration of single women from England to jumpstart Ireland's growth. That policy found few supporters, but the end of a decade of warfare would likely provide its own natural spur to population growth. Petty moved into even more innovative ground when he tackled Irish productivity. He lamented that the Irish farmer was horribly unproductive. Most people working the land scratched out a life of subsistence. In order to survive, families focused on self-sufficiency rather than specialization. As we've seen in this podcast, dependence on the market was a frightening prospect for many men and women. Unemployment or high bread prices could leave families facing starvation with nothing to fall back on. To this point, the counter-arguments from modernizing landlords had been rather unhelpful and self-serving. Their deeds of property gave them the right to use their lands as they saw fit, in the most efficient way possible. Petty observed that there was a larger process at work. Bringing subsistence farmers into the market economy benefited everyone. The more people bought, the more the market grew, producing higher wages and greater spurs to productivity. As Petty put it, a hundred pounds passing through a hundred hands for wages causes ten thousand pounds worth of commodities to be produced. The circulation of money wasn't a zero-sum gain, but actually created wealth. Modern economists refer to this as the multiplier effect. These discoveries led Petty to suggest some innovative strategies to his patron, Henry Cromwell. Ireland needed market towns where labor could specialize and consumer markets emerge. The greatest barrier to this that Petty saw in Irish society was behavioral, or as he would put it, moral. Petty observed that when wages rose, the Irish tended to work less rather than buy more. This was a problem. The benefits of productivity would only be realized if people spent their excess wealth. Part of the problem, Petty suspected, was religion. The many saints' days and holy days of the Catholic calendar fostered a lack of industry in Ireland's working population. But Petty also detected flaws in state economic policy. Like most nations, Ireland's government heavily discouraged the importation of luxury goods through taxes. On the one hand, customs were one of the only ways to raise state revenue. And on the other, Ireland had little wealth of its own. It seemed dangerous to let what cash existed flow abroad through the purchase of luxuries. Again, though, Petty took a counterintuitive approach. The people of Ireland had to be trained to love consumption. It was the act of buying and the construction of mass consumer markets that made productive economies. Petty, who became one of Cromwell's most trusted advisors, repeatedly pushed for a relaxation of Ireland's import customs, especially on luxury consumer goods. For the most part, Cromwell took his advice, though not as often as Petty would have liked. In a sense, William Petty was one of the fathers of modern economics. His observations on principles such as the multiplier effect or the specialization of labor lay the foundations of economic theory that would later be taken up by men like Adam Smith. Perhaps more importantly, Petty pioneered the collection and analysis of statistical data that underpins the study of economics today. His estimates on Ireland's output, gleaned from hard data, were in a way a kind of precursor to modern measures like GDP. By 1660, Ireland boasted the most accurate economic data anywhere in Europe, possibly in the whole world. Which isn't to say that Petty's contributions to the sum of human knowledge were entirely altruistic. He was assigning value to land in 17th century Ireland, after all. It went without saying that Petty benefited personally from his work. By one estimate, the survey netted Petty £9,000. Speaking of money, 
One of the reasons Henry Cromwell was interested in William Petty's theories was that the Irish state was in dire financial straits. Upon arrival, Cromwell immediately sought to cut expenses by reducing the size of the army. In addition to the cost savings, this had the added benefit of reducing the political influence of the army. But this was still, in effect, a foreign occupying regime. Cromwell couldn't dispose of the army altogether, and eventually settled on a force of around 9,000 men, much reduced from the wartime peak of 35,000, but still three times the size of the Irish army that had so taxed pre-war Stuart budgets. Beyond that, Dublin had to find a way to pay for its civilian workforce, judges, ministers, and schoolmasters, among others. Even after the budget cuts, more than half of government expenditure was being covered by subsidies from Westminster, a practice the Lord Protector expected his son to render unnecessary. In the long run, Petty's reforms might turn Ireland into a humming economy, but there was little chance of those innovative policies being implemented. Westminster's priority was the English economy, and the kind of production and trade Petty dreamed of for Ireland was a nightmare for most English businessmen. English producers feared competition from cheap Irish imports. They also feared cheap Irish labour. As a result, Westminster was opposed to any encouragement of domestic textile manufacturing in Ireland. Irish trade was effectively handcuffed by jealous English merchants. It didn't help that the wars against Scotland and the Netherlands in the early 1650s had cut Ireland off from alternative trading partners. Irish commerce was also undermined by Westminster's political program. After the new model army's conquest, Catholics were barred from many urban centres as security risks. Many Irish Catholic merchants took their capital, expertise, and contacts to the continent. In their absence, ports like Cork, Waterford, and Wexford were unable to benefit from post-war stability. English merchants were slow to fill the vacuum. Ireland didn't exactly have a reputation for the security that businesses needed to thrive. It was a similar story for Ireland's agrarian economy. Until the future of Ireland's property was settled, no one was willing to invest capital in improving the land. Government finances were a puzzle that Henry Cromwell was never able to solve. Of course, young Cromwell had more on his plate than just economic reform. His father had sent him to Ireland to turn the conquered nation into a functioning segment of the protectorate state. That meant a long-overdue reform of the legal and administrative system. At the very beginning of this podcast, when James came to the English throne, Ireland was divided into two separate legal spheres. In Dublin and the surrounding Pale, English common law was practiced. Elsewhere, traditional forms of Gaelic law still held sway. We didn't really cover this part of the story back then, but over the reigns of James and Charles, the English common law was extended throughout Ireland, with Protestant JPs and Assize judges supplanting Gaelic custom. This English system of justice and administration had barely put down roots when it was destroyed by the rebellion of 1641 and its subsequent wars. It wasn't until the New Model Army campaigns of the early 1650s that English authority was re-established throughout Ireland. But this was not a restoration of the pre-war English common law. You may recall that the levelers and other radicals of the Commonwealth era were no great fans of the common law. What Edward Cook worshipped as the perfection of ancient wisdom, radical republicans saw as a needlessly complex legal system that lawyers used to protect their wealthy clients at the expense of the common man. And, as you might expect, this radical interpretation of the law was prevalent among the radical Baptists who dominated Irish affairs in the Fleetwood era. Instead of restored JPs acting as regional administrators, Ireland was governed by officials closely associated with the army. Technically, these were assessors and tax collectors responsible for gathering the revenue needed to support the army. But in practice, they acted as judges as well. Regional governance was therefore ad hoc and determined by personal and ideological loyalty to radical army officers rather than established guidelines, local standing, or competence. 
Once again, the arrival of Henry Cromwell in the summer of 1654 changed things. Cromwell turned to the new English elites, appointing many of them JPs, a direct challenge to the army's control over local affairs. In fact, Cromwell made a point of separating the civilian and military arms of the government. No longer would army officers participate in civil administration. In practice, however, Cromwell's reform program faced significant obstacles. It was tough convincing men with proper training in the English common law to come to Ireland. The talent pool was further restricted by the government's refusal to trust men who hadn't proven their loyalty to the regime. Throughout the 1650s, the reach of the English common law was more evident in theory than in practice. Cromwell enjoyed a bit more success in restoring a degree of autonomy to Ireland's towns. Most borough charters had been revoked over the course of the war, and Charles Fleetwood had been in no hurry to restore them once the conflict was over. The army closely guarded the influence it had in directly administering urban areas through its garrisons. Henry Cromwell, on the other hand, saw local urban elites as useful counters to army influence. In the months after his arrival, he restored the charters of Cork, Limerick, Kilkenny, Derry, Waterford, and Wexford, empowering their citizens to take over from the army officers that had ruled since the conquest. These urban elites were, of course, Protestant. Parliamentary statute banned Catholics from major urban centers and strategic garrisons in order to ensure the safety of the army. What Henry Cromwell was doing with these policies, broadly speaking, was putting power in the hands of Ireland's established New English elites, at the expense of the overpowerful army. The strategy was a kind of balancing act. Cromwell wanted the freedom to govern Ireland without being entirely dependent on any one faction, the major flaw he had observed in Fleetwood's administration. Nowhere was that balancing act more explicit, or more tenuous, than in the realm of religion. Like everything else in Ireland, Cromwell walked into a confused and fractious religious landscape. In fact, the conflict between the New English Protestants and the Army Baptists has taken up much of this episode. For the past few years, Ireland had served as a kind of refuge for fringe religious figures pushed out of England, especially after the Protectorate's rejection of the Fifth Monarchist Movement. The government in Ireland therefore failed to produce any kind of coherent orthodoxy in religion, which was no surprise as Westminster was hardly consistent on that score either. Really, that was why the Army Baptists had accumulated so much influence. The Irish Church also had a never-ending supply of vacancies to fill, attracting all sorts of clergymen who had failed to find a home in England for one reason or another. The effect on Irish religious life was palpable. Witchcraft, which like elsewhere in the British Isles had been in decline, suddenly resurfaced. So too did stories of ghosts, phantasms, and the coming apocalypse. The trend only accelerated when the commission to propagate the gospel in Wales came to an end. Many of the newly unemployed preachers headed to Ireland. Unsurprisingly, then, Henry Cromwell sought out allies within the Church of Ireland. Here, the key figure was Samuel Winter, a minister with impeccable Puritan credentials. Winter had studied at Cambridge under John Preston, the great Calvinist of the 1620s who had spoken against Arminianism at the Duke of Buckingham's York House Conference. Winter followed that up by acting as a kind of apprentice to the influential John Cotton in Boston. By the time the Commonwealth was setting up its civilian administration in Ireland, Winter was a well-known clergyman of the Congregational School in England, and as his brother-in-law was selected to act as one of Parliament's commissioners in Dublin, he was a natural choice to bring his brand of independent religion across the Irish Sea. Winter took an immediate interest in Trinity College, the institution responsible for educating Ireland's Protestant clergy. His goal wasn't just to minister to the New English, but to convert Irish Catholics too. To further that cause, he pushed Trinity College to teach its students the Gaelic language skills necessary to speak to Ireland's people. But more importantly for us in this episode, Winter cultivated a congregational base in Ireland that opposed the radical Baptists in the army. 
Crudely speaking, the occupying regime in Ireland was divided between a Baptist army faction and a civilian Congregationalist faction. Charles Fleetwood had relied on the Army Baptists for support, making them the dominant faction. But Henry Cromwell was determined to maintain his freedom of action, and so supported a counterweight in Irish politics in the form of Samuel Winter's Congregationalists. But the Baptists weren't the only religious faction in Ireland. Cromwell also had to figure out how to deal with the Presbyterian Scots in Ulster, not to mention Ireland's majority Catholic population, which was probably as high as 90% of the total. Here, Cromwell pursued a more subtle version of his factional balancing strategy. Although Henry's personal faith likely leaned Congregationalist, he didn't throw his full public support behind Samuel Winter. As a politician, Cromwell was reluctant to tie himself too completely to any one faction in the church. In this, he reflected some of the tendencies of his father. Cromwell made sure to form alliances within the Irish Presbyterian community, both English and Scottish varieties. He quickly corrected the rumors that the Ulster Scots might be forcibly removed from their lands, like the Irish Catholics. The role of the Ulster Scots in the various royalist coalitions of the recent years could be forgiven and forgotten. As for the English Presbyterians, Cromwell publicly supported Edward Worth, an Anglo-Irish Presbyterian minister and vocal critic of the Baptists. Worth also had connections to the influential Boyle family, which helped him advance in Cromwell's new administration. By 1655, he was on a special committee Cromwell had set up to vet future ministers in the Irish church. Like his father, it's unlikely that Henry Cromwell had warm personal feelings towards Presbyterians. There were even rumors that Worth sometimes used the Book of Common Prayer in services, an act that would be seen as outright royalism in England. But including Presbyterians in a broad coalition served a useful function for Cromwell. Neither the Baptists, nor the Congregationalists, nor the Presbyterians were strong enough to dominate his administration on their own. Therefore, they all had an interest in maintaining a seat at the table. Ireland's Catholics posed a far greater challenge. The Roman Church was more or less synonymous with rebellion, and its priesthood was made illegal under the protectorate, under punishment of death. Hundreds of Catholic clergy were killed under the reigns of Fleetwood and later Henry Cromwell, and more than a thousand fled into continental exile. But Henry was enough of a pragmatist to realize that he couldn't stamp out the religion of 90% of the population overnight. Conversion wasn't a realistic possibility. Despite Samuel Winter's efforts at Trinity College, there were very few Protestant clergymen fluent in Gaelic, nor was there space in the limited budget to fund a missionary program in Ireland. As a Cromwell, Henry didn't have much personal sympathy for Catholics either, but he did see the practical limitations of ruling a majority Catholic nation. Henry quietly failed to enforce some of the more impractical directives that came out of Westminster. For instance, an oath to be imposed on all Irish Catholics stating that the church in Rome was no true church at all. Or an order that anyone who taught their children Gaelic was to be treated as a criminal. Cromwell similarly refused to enforce mandatory attendance at Protestant services. Again, not out of any sympathy for the plight of Catholics, but simply because attempting to do so was impossible, and in failing to do so, his administration would look weak. For their part, Irish Catholics could take little solace in Cromwell's relatively lax enforcement of religious laws. They still lived under a regime that outlawed their religion and openly killed their religious leaders. The occupying government also had the power to revoke their property rights on a whim, and even debated the wholesale transplanting of populations. The fact that the government didn't always exercise these powers to their fullest extent didn't mean it wouldn't in the future. Where previously, in the old Stuart state, Irish Catholics had some limited recourse to the rule of law, they now seemed entirely at the mercy of a bigoted and murderous regime. Under Henry Cromwell, that regime discarded some of the more aggressive rhetoric of Fleetwood's Baptist allies, but the change was hardly comforting. 
We'll leave Ireland on that somber note, however. By 1656, Henry Cromwell had made significant progress in his mission. Ireland remained a deeply divided place. It was still a drain on the protectorate's finances, and the Herculean task of land redistribution was still a work in progress. But Cromwell had successfully neutralized any opposition to his father's regime within the Irish government. In the short term, that was enough to make his administration a qualified success. This had implications beyond Ireland. The protectorate constitution, the instrument of government, laid out a formula for selecting Oliver Cromwell's successor as Lord Protector. But that selection process required the cooperation of the Council of State and Parliament, a cooperation that was noticeably absent so far in protectorate politics. For some, a more traditional method of succession was attractive. If one Cromwell could be Lord Protector, why not another? Henry was not the eldest son. That honour fell to his brother Richard. But in Ireland, Henry was proving himself to be a competent politician, perhaps in time a worthy successor to his father. It wouldn't be the first time that Ireland was used as a proving ground for political leadership in England. As you may recall, Thomas Wentworth had graduated from Ireland to become Charles's chief minister in the lead-up to the Civil War. Whether Henry would chart a similar course, only time would tell. Next time, we return to England, where Henry Cromwell's father was making his own tactical alliances with minority religious factions. But where the younger Cromwell was working within the Protestant world, the elder was contemplating a more unconventional scheme. After more than 350 years of exile from England, the Jews were petitioning to return. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.